Open with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews will be in the first two verses of Hebrews chapter 12 this morning. If you're visiting with us and don't have a copy of the Bible, or if you don't have a copy of the Bible with you for any reason, page 1008 in the Bible provided for you will get you right there. Well, if you're running a race... There's probably no getting away from the pain. That's just a part of it. But the answer to getting across the finish line is not focusing squarely on your pain. Even focusing on the pain of others who have made it. So it is in the Christian life. It is costly, it is difficult to be a Christian and to stay one. And we don't make it across the finish line by focusing on the costs, but by focusing on the reward. By focusing on Jesus, not even in what he paid for us, but in the reward that was and is his even now. Let's read together from Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Turn with me back one chapter to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 35. Just about a paragraph and a half. This morning's passage from Hebrews chapter 12 is the culmination, in some ways, of the book, uh, but certainly of the last chapter, chapter 11, recounted a collection of Old Testament saints, some who had it harder than others, but all who looked to God as faithful. And we have hints as to what they were looking forward to on the basis of God's word. Verse 35 It's an important jumping-off point for this morning's sermon. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Resurrection back to life. This is what some of the women in the Old Testament experienced in their children dying and and a prophet, two instances, raising those children back to life and they believed God's word and they trusted the prophet and, and God through his prophet performed a resurrection. Quite amazing. Abraham, many years before, took his son Isaac up the hill. God had commanded him to offer his son as an offering to slay his son. Only God can tell anyone to do that. And he would obey, but God had also said it was through that exact son that all of God's promises would come about. And so there was a tension. 
God said this son would be the one through whom many descendants come, salvation comes to the world, but then God just said to kill that son. So he figures, well, God can raise him from the dead, so I'll obey God and we'll trust God to do what he said. Uh, Refiguratively speaking, he did receive him back, the author of Hebrews says, um, because God provided a substitute for that offering there on that mountain. A ram instead of Isaac was given. Now, some, some sons were raised literally, these sons of these women, apparently. But just back to life, more of the same life. Might even just call it a resuscitation. But this verse here, verse 35 in chapter 11, also speaks of those who refused to accept release when tortured by recanting and taking back their faith and denying their God. They refused to accept release because they were looking forward to a better life, being raised to a better life. So I take it that the figurative resurrection of Isaac there on the mountain and the real resurrections or resuscitations of the sons of these women in the Old Testament are but prefigurings and shadows of a real resurrection, not to more of the same life, but to a better life. And that these are hints planted for us in the Old Testament story that lead us to recognize who Jesus is when he comes, certainly when he is raised. Resurrection to a better life, not just more of the same. In the headlines this week, we learned that Jeff Bezos and many others are investing millions and billions of dollars in anti-aging pills. Apparently, five years from now, they may be available to us. And I was thinking, yeah, yeah, I would want to keep living, but but uh, I don't know, it's kind of rough here. Um, more of the same? More of the same? You can still get hit by a car. No, the Bible holds out to us more than an anti-aging answer. It, it holds, us, holds out an answer to us for this age altogether. A different quality and quantity of life, a better kind of life that is not entirely dissimilar to this. It's bodily, we learn. Scriptures promise a resurrection from the dead. But it is qualitatively and quantitatively different. Well, what is better about this life? How is it a better life? What's so good about it? Well, it must be good if we consider all that others were willing to give up for it. In verse 35 of the previous chapter, willing not to recant their faith in the midst of torture because they looked forward to it. We think of Moses, whom we heard about two weeks ago, who was willing to accept the reproach of Christ and not indulge the riches of Egypt in order that he might receive his reward one day. We get a hint of its value by what others are giving up for it. We are, after all, surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. And these witnesses aren't just watching 
us, although the picture seems to indicate that. We're to be encouraged uh, and cheered on, if you will, by stadiums of those who have gone before us. But that is primarily an illegal image. We're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses testifying on the stand to the faithfulness of God on the basis of his own character and word and on his faithfulness to them. And having died, they are all the closer to that resurrection life promised us in the scriptures. And we're surrounded as if in a race uh, flanked on both sides by those cheering us on. There is a finish line, and you can make it because God is faithful. Well, what is this better life? I presume we must look forward to it. The saints of old did. I presume that it is not enough for you and me in the Christian life and carrying our crosses merely to look at Jesus on the cross. We did that on Friday night through the preaching of the word. But even in this passage here, it's not exactly the case that we look to Jesus on the cross. We're taken there in the text. We look to Jesus, and where is he? Well, he endured the cross, past tense, despising the shame, but he is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. In other words, there is a need to endure. There is a problem of suffering and trouble and temptation to leave off Christ in this life. And the answer is not to look at Jesus suffering on the cross. In fact, that won't help you endure on its own. It is to look at Jesus seated on his throne, having endured the cross. And so we make sure our eyes are in the right place. And what is the substance of this life? What is this better life? Well, we can get some insight into our resurrection life, the reward of bearing the reproach of Christ in this life by looking to Jesus on the throne. And what do we see What do we see when we look to Jesus seated on his throne at the right hand of God? Well, four answers to that question from this passage. We see that this life involves indestructible joy, incomparable honor, undisputable victory, and matchless grace. And we'll get each of those little phrases from four different words in this short passage. Let's meditate on this passage together and consider God's word. What do we see when we see Jesus on the throne? We see indestructible joy. Indestructible joy. Not even death can stand in the way of Jesus' joy on the way to the cross. Look to Jesus, we're told, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, very, very important, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. It's indestructible. This joy was enough to power Jesus through the suffering of Death, a great suffering indeed, as we have learned and will explore today. 
And death cannot stand in the way of this joy because of the way it comes to him from his father. In Hebrews chapter 1, you don't need to turn there with me, but it's not so far away if you wanted to. We have a string of Old Testament quotes to set the course of the letter. And from the very first page of this long sermon letter we've been in as a church, we see Jesus on his throne. And numerous times that throne is repeated and referred to. In the third person, his throne, he is seated, his throne. But in this case, in Hebrews uh, chapter 1, Verse 8, we see a quote from Psalm 110 that puts this in the first person. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. This is the Father speaking to the Son. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Your throne is forever and ever. Verse 13 Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This is the Father speaking to the Son. You can go back to chapter 12 now. It can't stand in his way, death can't, because of the way that this promise, this joy comes to him. It comes to him from the Father, directly to him. It is the Father who speaks. Consider the source, in other words. If you're buying leather, made in Italy is something you might want to look out for. I don't know, at least that's in my head. That leather from Italy is good. I guess they've got really good cows in Italy. Um, Or maybe they have them imported and they're just really good at what to do with cows to make really good leather. Different cultures and countries and places take pride in different things and get a name for it and are especially good at it. Consider the source. Where was this thing made exactly? Well, that matters to us if we're looking for quality. Well, this joy that Jesus is holding on to that powers him through the cross is a joy that is made in heaven. There is nothing like it. There are tastes of it here, insofar as God gives us one blessing or another. But this joy is a joy from heaven. It is qualitatively different than what we know here. This is indestructible joy and not even death can stand in its way. And death can't stand in its way because of how it came to the Son. And because it comes by way of the Father, it knows no end. The cross was something to be endured. He endured the cross. He's done. Enduring the cross. He remains a man, but he is not a man on the cross anymore. He came through to the other side. The great 
encouraging truth for us this morning in the fact of Jesus' resurrection is that while we may have to go through this life and suffer in various ways, we will never come through the joy of heaven. We will never pass through and come out the other side of a really good day when we're with him. And then meet a day that isn't quite what the one was before. Forever and ever, it will get better and better. It's great news. And it's news we can count on because of the resurrection from the dead. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. It's not enough to say that this throne is forever. It's a throne that is forever and ever. Well, what is this joy? Well, in the first place, for the Lord Jesus, the joy set before him was the joy of being with his Father. The Father speaks to the Son, have a seat. And that is what's on, on promise for us as well. But that cannot be all that it entails. For the Lord Jesus had that pleasure before he came to earth. It was not necessary for him to go to the cross in order to be with his Father. But the Father sent the Son, and the Son in love came for us. And so there must be more than the Father and Son being together that powered the Son in joy through the suffering of the cross. And so there must be more for us as well. And there's a hint in this word endured. For this word endured is not passive, as in Jesus went through the cross, had to go through the cross. Rather, he actively endured the cross. He didn't just get through it, but he went through it. So there must be yet a joy for Jesus as he is facing the cross on the other side of the cross that depends on what he's doing on the cross to lay hold of. There must be some joy that Jesus is seeking by way of the cross. Indestructible joy, and that's on hold for us as well. Now, incomparable honor. Incomparable honor. And if we get our first point from that word joy, then we get our second point from this word shame, which is the opposite of honor. I'm not preaching the opposite of what's here. Follow me. The cross was about more than pain for the Son of God. And it was more than pain for those who were crucified next to him, criminals. It was more than pain, but it was shame. And that shame was a big deal in ancient Rome. 
by hanging criminals and traitors on crosses for all to see, naked, ashamed, Rome communicated its will to force obedience and order. It's how it got the job done of bringing about the peace that it could. It was a big deal in Rome. And this shame was a big deal in heaven as well. For the Son of God didn't only go to death, but to a particular death and death on a cross. The Son of God was hung out in a shameful way in public to be humiliated and embarrassed. And there he bore the shame, the accusation, criminal, guilty for sin. This shame was a big deal in Rome. It wasn't just about pain, and so that is the case in heaven. But it's interesting that while this shame is a big deal, it is belittled in our passage. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. I had a friend who was a preacher once, and uh, someone in his church said, didn't you get all those sermons in seminary? Like, isn't that where it all came from? Like, all the sermons. It doesn't come that way. We learn new things every week, even new things about a word. This little line here, it's familiar to me. Maybe it's been familiar to you that Jesus endured the cross and he despised the shame. What does it mean that he despised it? I always thought it was he didn't like it. He despised it. Better to say, he considered it as nothing. He considered it as small. Doesn't that make sense? Because there's a joy that's set before him by which he's enduring the cross And because of the joy, on the other side of the cross, he considers the shame of the cross to be small. Oh, that will preach. I'm very glad to have discovered this. Because if the shame is very great, and it was very great, consider this. I hesitate to pile on the word infinity. But we have no other word for the immeasurable guilt that we have as sinners before a holy God. We have no business rejecting him, ignoring him, not giving thanks to him, rebelling openly against him. All of us are in this in Adam. All of us are in this as sinners. Not one is exempt in this room. We don't come to church on Easter any of us, because we are good to prove something. Well, we may in our heart, I suppose, but that's not why this exists. The cross and the resurrection happened, and we come to celebrate both because we are sinners, and we have great need. And our debt before God is an infinite debt that we could not pay, but for an eternity condemned in hell. 
So this is a very great shame that Jesus takes this shame, not for a sinner, but for all those for whom he died. What a cost. What a shame. And yet, the joy that was set before him means that that shame is small. It can't compare with the joy that is on the other side of that cross. And that is not to make little of the cross. It is to make much of that joy. Much of the joy of the honor that would be his for enduring the cross. The shame is immense. That honor is more immense still. And Jesus despised the shame of the cross because he greatly desired, knowing what it was, the honor that would be his. When he hears from the Father, take a seat at my right hand. So friends, we live in a shameless age. The headlines can be summed up in the simple and memorable and biblical phrase. They exchanged evil for good and good for evil. Calling evil good and good evil. And the great temptation for you and me, if we are in Christ, is to equivocate and kind of join in and say we understand when really we live in upside-down world, and it's just how it is. To be a Christian is to confess that we are upside-down apart from Jesus, and it is to exchange calling evil good and good evil for calling good good and evil evil. And coming to the cross for forgiveness means confessing that we are on the wrong side of the equation. We are, we are evil, and the reason we want to call good evil is because we can't call ourselves evil. We have no way out of that verdict. But because of the cross and the grace of God, we can call evil evil and good good, and God good, and ourselves sinners, and still have hope of salvation. And we live in a shameless age. But because of the cross and because Jesus is on his throne and honored there with incomparable honor, you and I can live shamelessly. We can live unashamed. Jesus on his throne incomparable honor. Now the third, undisputed victory. That is what he knows there. What happened to all the evil? It is not God's intention, this is part of the good news of the gospel, that forever and ever sin and death would exist in parallel, in some kind of strange, mysterious harmony with the holy God of heaven and the eternal life he holds out to us. No, he puts an end to murder and to rape and to lustful thoughts and to deceit and to lying and to calling evil good and calling good 
evil. He sets the whole world right. How that can be good news for us, we'll get to in a moment. But in the first place, we have to confess that if Jesus is on his throne, and if as he's promised, he is coming back, then every wrong and upside down and twisted and distorted and sick thing about this age, including the sin in our own hearts, will be gone. And that's great to hear. Scripture is promised, and the author of this book has told us that all of Jesus' enemies will be put under his feet. They will be as his footstool, done away with, put down forever. This is what it means when it says that he's seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He's He's at the right hand. He's in that place, that seat of power and of authority. You see, the cross was a great injustice. And it wasn't vigilante justice. Yes, there were mobs, but those mobs cried out for and called out to Rome for a legal verdict of guilty. Jesus was tried and condemned in a court of law as guilty and sentenced to crucifixion. It was real bad. It was a gross injustice, the greatest injustice the universe has ever known. Perfect injustice, we could even even say. And his throne, opposite his cross, in that respect, represents perfect justice. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Oh, don't miss here, Jesus cried, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. He went to the cross in love and mercy for sinners but he will not hold out forever for us to repent. Sin and death and the curse will not go on forever in parallel with his righteous throne, but he will set all things right. And so on his throne is the knowledge and the experience of the son of indestructible joy, of incomparable honor, of undisputed victory. There's no retrials, there's no appeals, it's straightforward and it is forever. And through the cross, the evil that sent Jesus to the cross is undone as the Lord Jesus is raised from the dead to put Satan and sin under his foot. And so how can this come to you and me? It's a good message that justice will win in the end. That yes, history does bend to justice in this certain sense. Because God will bring it about through the Son. How can that be good news for a sinner like you and me? Why did we show up here this morning? Merely to bow down to the God of perfect justice who will put us under his feet? Or did we get up this morning because there is hope for sinners like you and me who ought to be under the feet of Jesus? 
who is on his throne. No, there is hope. And so on this throne, there is also matchless grace. And this is the one thing of the four answers I've offered you. When we look to the, to the throne, what do we see? This is the one thing Jesus doesn't go there to get and to give. Because he goes there for his own joy and he gives joy. He goes there for his own honor and he gives honor. He goes there for victory and vindication. And you and I will be vindicated in the end. It may look like we're the upside down ones and that we've committed gross sin and that we've been cruel. But in the end, Jesus flips it all right. An enemy in sin and every injustice is under his foot and we, like Jesus, are vindicated. That's for him. It's also for you. It's also for me. But this one here, Jesus doesn't go to the throne and have a seat to get grace. He has a seat to give grace. We get this from our word, seated. He is seated on his throne. And there on his throne, he offers the great grace of forgiveness. I'll let you turn with me in this case. Hebrews chapter 1. Verse 3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is sitting down because he is done being crucified. He's sitting down because he has already made purification for sins. You and I could not be accepted in the presence of God because we are unclean. We're stained with sin all the way through. But because his cross, his death, his sacrifice of himself for you, a great high priest offering a perfect sacrifice for you, you can be purified of your impurities. You can be forgiven, fully forgiven of all of your sins. So when we see Jesus sitting down at the Father's right hand, when he's seated on his throne, when we consider the throne, it's not just that we consider the possibility of forgiveness and looking at the cross, because, friend, consider that if Jesus is still on a cross, he's still condemned. If Jesus is still dead, he's still condemned. But he's not condemned anymore because he's on his throne. And so you need to look not only to a cross, but to a throne and a Savior who's on the throne. So there is grace greater than our sins on offer to us. Grace which offers the forgiveness of sins to sinners. Matchless grace. There's also grace for fellowship with God. Turn with me to chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 14. Verse 14. 
since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. There's the word. That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Fellowship with God. The goal of forgiveness of our sins. To be a Christian isn't just to come into forgiveness by grace. To have zero debt against God. And no transformed relationship? No. To be a Christian is to be forgiven in order to enjoy fellowship with the forgiver. It is why God forgives sins. It is why he sent his son. It is why Jesus endured the cross. It is for the joy of dispensing the forgiveness of sins to sinners and of bringing you into a relationship with God that Jesus endured the cross. And it is his pleasure to bring you into that relationship. It is his pleasure for us to draw near to God, uninhibited by our sins, because we are forgiven and purified, to draw near to him in prayer, to draw near to him together in praise and in prayer when we gather. The matchless grace of God for forgiveness and for fellowship with God and for help in the face of our trouble and our temptations. It could be that in this season of your life, Christian, you are experiencing or anticipating particular costs for identifying with Jesus, for confessing him as Lord and living like he is Lord, and for speaking out loud that Jesus is Lord. It may be that you are faced with temptation to leave off Christ because of that pressure. It may be that you're tempted to leave off Christ because of the pull of the world, the cares of this world, and the desires for other things. But somehow you've lost sight of that joy set before Jesus that is the joy set before you. And the cost of it all doesn't seem worth it when there's so much right in front of you to enjoy. Fleeting pleasures, Scripture calls them, but it's kind of hard to see them as fleeting, isn't it? Our life feels a lot longer than it is. And sin, as it tempts us, holds itself out as more promising and more enduring than it is. And it never tells us about the consequences and the costs, by the way. Well, for any variety of reasons, you may be tempted to drift and to leave off following Christ. And as you're here this morning and are conflicted in your heart as to whether you should leave him, maybe you would hesitate to draw near to him from shame that you're even making that consideration. But isn't this encouraging? That we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin? Jesus was tempted to leave off obeying his father. 
Jesus was tempted to leave off obeying to the point of death. And he understands what you're going through. Good thing, he didn't sin. And so he can help you. He's alive and well to help you. And he understands your temptations and so he can help you. So draw near to him for help. And if you don't feel worthy of the help, well, that's why we call it grace. That's the point of the whole thing. It's the point of the cross is you need help. The point of the resurrection and this vision of a throne is you need a king because you're a bad one. A real bad king of your own life. You're unrighteous. His scepter is righteous. You die because of the curse of sin, but his throne is forever, and it's forever. Now, Jesus is an anchor for our souls, an anchor not at the bottom of an ocean, but an anchor for us in heaven, an anchor to him. He takes us all the way there, and we draw near to him by the Spirit this morning when we gather, and he will bring us all the way there if we'll avail ourselves of his gracious Gracious help. No, friends, without the resurrection, Jesus is still condemned, and so there is no forgiveness. Without the resurrection, Jesus is still in the ground, separated from the Father, and so there's no getting to God for any of us. And without the resurrection, he is, for all intents and purposes, helpless like we are. Oh, but he is not helpless because he's on his throne. He is on his throne, friends, where he knows indestructible joy, incomparable honor, undisputed victory, and where he offers to us unmatched grace. And so if you're here this morning, listening in on this passage, which was written to Christians and a local church, And considering that you might be outside of all of these great promises, for they are very great, and if your heart is strangely inclined to want in on them, oh, that is a great sign. And would you know that that is even a sign of the grace of God and Jesus' mercy to you? For does not our passage call him the founder and the perfecter of our faith? You find yourself starting to believe when we say these things are true, believe, and you believe. I'll give credit to God for that as well. No, there's no way into these things. There's no way to the other side of Jesus' foot. Enemies underneath, his friends at his side. Honored, joy forever vindicated. There's no way from the underside of Jesus' foot to his side apart from faith. And what is faith? But looking to Jesus and confessing our complete dependence upon him for salvation, our complete and helpless situation as sinners apart from him. And it's why Good Friday is a good day for us. It was a bad day for sinners Our worst was on display. It's what we do. Lord of glory comes to us and we say, crucify him because we call good evil. And in that moment, we called good evil. But through faith, 
confessing our complete dependence upon God, you and I too can know indestructible joy, incomparable honor, undisputed victory through the unmatched grace of God. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we thank you that there is so much encouragement in the Bible. There's so much truth about us. And by faith, you've allowed us to confess that we have nothing to bring to this relationship that you have not given to us. And you have given to us the righteousness of your son at great cost, the cost of his life. And we thank you that he not only died for us, but even now he intercedes for us and he is seated for us and he sympathizes with us and he helps us. And you have helped us this morning with this word about vindication and about honor and joy. So would you, as we face our temptations this week, and as we consider leaving off Christ, would you help us to fix our eyes on Jesus who is no longer on a cross, but is seated at your right hand? so that we might really believe that this hard life with him is worth it because of the joy set before us. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.